I used to have this all in my head when I give talks about it and I brush up, but bamboo is really one of the most incredible things on the plant. It's the fastest growing plant in the world. You can actually watch it grow 12 inches in a day. Same family as the grass that you mow with your uh, lawnmower or weed whacker or whatever. It has the tensile strength of steel. And actually during the war, we used bamboo as rebar in our structures. And I think Singapore still uses bamboo in their road structures. There's a great video of an earthquake. I think it's in Hong Kong. And the guys on the ladder, they can go up something like 14 stories on these bamboo scaffoldings. And the building starts to crumble as the whole structure sways. And they're on the ladder, but their ladder is fine. And that's just a pole lashed to a pole lashed to a pole. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 78 with Paulo Coleman. I met Paulo at Deke's Tiny House Summer Camp event, and he never ceases to amaze me by demonstrating really interesting alternative methods of working with wood, finishing wood, just cool things you can do. And so I asked Paulo on the show to tell us about a couple of his favorites. So first, we're going to talk about shishugiban, which is an ancient technique for burning the outside of wood to actually preserve it. And so you can do shishugiban instead of using a finish on your exterior siding. And it is really effective. Um, It's an old technique, but it's actually become much more popular. And I think it's quite beautiful. So Paulo will tell us how to do it, what tools you need to achieve a shishugiban finish, and offer some tips for doing it well and not accidentally burning down your house. From there, we actually go into talking about bamboo. And Paulo does a lot of work with bamboo. Uh, It's useful for fences, for ladders. You can even build bridges out of it. But there are also some other interesting uses, and we'll go into that. And Paula will also, again, offer his tips for how to work with the material. This is a really interesting conversation, and I think you're going to learn a lot, so I hope you stick around. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, the Tiny House Forum. Are you frustrated by how fragmented Tiny House information is online? Tiny House Forum is an online community for exchanging information, ideas, and resources related to the Tiny House movement all in one central location. At Tiny House Forum, you can have conversations with others who are interested in the tiny house lifestyle, those currently living the tiny house lifestyle, and tiny house businesses and organizations that can provide guidance along the way. Tinyhouseforum.com is 100% free to use and joining is easy. Head on over to tinyhouseforum.com to participate in the discussions or start a new topic of your own today. If that didn't already sound great, right now you can be entered to win $500 cash by joining Tiny House Forum and making your first few posts. Learn more about the contest at tinyhouseforum.com where you can sign up and be entered to win $500 cash. Again, that's tinyhouseforum.com where you can sign up to be entered to win $500 cash.
All right. Paulo Coleman grew up unfettered in Northern California, where he spent a lot of time in the woods and taught himself building skills and developed an interest in small-scale living. Now living on the East Coast in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he continues to experiment in myriad woodworking techniques and is a tiny house builder to boot. Recent projects include a living playground in Waitsfield, Vermont's elementary school, making a vertical garden system, constructing medieval games for the Fuller Craft Museum, and developing a portable studio with Japanese wood siding. Paulo Coleman, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? It's great. It's good to have you here. Hey. I think the first time that I met you was at Tiny House Summer Camp when you were shooting a giant arc of flames at some wood on the ground. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were doing the Shoshujiban uh, technique. Is that how it's pronounced with a kind of a soft G? Everybody has a different version. And uh, when I've asked my friends who are Japanese, they're like, what? Uh, they say, I don't know what that is. <sighs> they say it's like it just means cedar siding or uh, so you get different views of it. Um, but it's, you know, it's a technique that they use a lot in Japan. But, you know, we used it here and uh it's used all over the world. So what what is it actually? We should we should back up oh, and yeah. say like what is shoshugiban or shoshujiban? So it's a traditional technique of burning wood. Now, uh the reason you do th- that is to uh basically to give it a longer life because when you burn the wood or turn it into charcoal on the outside layer, it then is fire resistant because it's hard for charcoalized wood to catch fire. And the second point is that it keeps uh, bugs and bacteria from eating it. And you can still go to uh, Mount St. Helens and still see logs that were scorched from the original explosion from the eruption still there because nothing breaks them down. Wow. And so Shoshujiban is kind of the same principle. You burn the wood on the outside and then oil it for uh, preservation to keep the charcoal on it and also to keep water from penetrating in. Okay. And so it it's rot resistant because like microbes and critters don't don't eat burned stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then it's even better if you use a wood that's already has defenses against it. So traditionally you use cedar and cedar is an antifungal agent and bugs don't like it either so that's kind of doubling up on that process right right i i know that intuitively because when i've accidentally used cedar sawdust in my composting toilet cover material i notice that it does not break down very well in the compost it doesn't but it definitely smells better than uh, other wood <laughs> options in yes. the compost yes that's true <laughs> so how was Shoshugiban done um, originally and how, you know, how do we do it now? Well, okay. So the, I think we used to use a version of it here in the old West where we would take the wood and stick it. Like if we were putting a fence post in, we would burn the bottom of the fence post over open fire and then put it into the ground. So that was something that was used in colonial times and in the uh, West during expansion. And that came over from Europe and England. It wasn't, you know, something that was recently discovered. 
And the Japanese, their system is kind of amazing because you'll have a building, uh, their cypress trees are just super thin and tall, go straight up in this perfect line. It's amazing to walk through those forests. And with those trees, they cut boards that are 20, 25 feet long. And what they'll do, they won't burn it on the ground in sections. They'll take three of them and make a little triangle out of them and wrap them with copper wire. And then they get a small brazier of wood. Usually it's a metal box. And they set this 25 foot long contraption that they've made by wiring the wood on top of it. So it's almost like a tube. Yeah, exactly. They take three flat pieces and make a triangular tube. And what that does is it sucks the air up and it creates almost like a tornado within a fire and burns it very strong. And then they wear big gloves, then they drop it down the ground, they unclip the wires, and then they water it to stop the burning. And then after that, they oil it. Whereas now it's become such a fad, there's actually companies that have machines that just charcoal the wood as it runs through a conveyor belt. But traditionally, for anybody doing it on their own, uh, my two recommendations are a small handheld torch just for doing detail work and a bit and a weed torch, propane weed torch. And that's where you're going to do most of it. And, you know, that's like uh, $40 for that. And you just plug it right into your propane and you're ready to go. Yeah, such inexpensive materials and then you basically just use propane that's your only other expense over time yeah i've done an entire tiny house with two tanks of propane so like that would have been i'm thinking 60 dollars, and then the oil was another 100 so for 160 i was able to not including the wood do the whole outside of the house what kind of oil is used it it's, goes back and forth, especially with all the VOC laws that they have now. Uh, but basically, you just want to use any kind of outdoor oil. Um, you don't. Uh, you want something that is going to build up and somewhat harden to keep the the wood, the uh, charcoal part, from coming off through rain. And then you just reapply every two years. I use outdoor finishes, but Massachusetts just banned it except for in court containers. Actually, there's just a new law that New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, a whole bunch of Northeast places. So it's going to be harder to get. Outdoor oil? Yeah. Um, any oil in a gallon is now harder to get than it was. Huh. So oil finish, oil preservative, um, even like a, a polyurethane oil base in a gallon, it, I think it's going to be really hard to get in the future. Is the idea that it's so bad to get rid of that and people always end up with extra that they end up like dumping it down the storm drain or do you know? I think there's, that's part of it. And then the other part of it is VOC laws. Uh, you know, they, a lot of laws we have are for the lowest common denominator. They, they imagine, you know, everybody is somebody in their basement leaning over a piece of wood, sniffing it as they paint it. And so the laws get written that way. I mean, there's reasons for it, but they do tend to go overboard sometimes. So like yeah. if I'm in California doing a job, I have to drive to Nevada to get oil. 
so I can use it on a deck in California. Wow. Yeah, it, you know, it's just part of life. But there are a lot of uh, tropical nut oils that you can use too. Okay. So in the process, you lay the wood on the ground, you burn it to your desired kind of level. Is there any like, do you need to wet it? Do you need to like brush it or sand it? Or like, do you go right to oil? There is, it's really comes down to what you want out of your finish. So you can use it almost like a sandpaper. You can burn the outside wood and then brush it down and bring it back down to a, almost a, a chocolate brown. I'm just talking about cedar. You can do it with oak, all sorts of different woods. You can burn it until it gets my favorite, which is the alligator skin, where the charcoal starts to crumble and it really does look like black alligator skin. That's a little harder to work with. You want to oil that right away. If you're careful in your burning, you don't need to use water um, because what's happening is you're putting such an intense heat on the wood that when you stop, it, it almost has nowhere to go. It's already burned off its fuel source. So I almost never use water. And sometimes I'll just tap it with my hand to, you know, cut off the air. If there's like a little, little bit that's burning. Yeah. Or thing. a little smoking. Yeah. And, but it's, it's, it's not a uh, science, it's an art. So it's really comes down to what the individual wants to do with it. The more charcoal it has, the better it lasts over time, but that's maybe not the look you want. So you can play it by degrees. So what is the, what is the upkeep? Is there any upkeep? Well, that's the greatest thing about it that I like. So if you do siding, you have to aluminum siding, you know, it only lasts so long. You have to wash it. It gets built up with this. It's just oiling. So every year or two, you put another coat of oil and it penetrates back into the wood and that's it. You're done. And Shoshujiban technique, you know, your siding like that, it can last 80 years. So pretty much your entire lifespan. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, I think the oldest living or the oldest structure made out of wood is from the 11th century in Norway. And it's a version of that, but they use tar pit. Like, so the tar is used to preserve the outside. Okay. But it's kind of the same principle. You're coating the outside in something that's not edible or desirable yeah. for, for breakdown. You should look it up. Just look up oldest Norwegian church. It's this crazy black uh, structure. It looks like something out of Lord of the Rings, like Sauron would live there. Cool. I'll find it and put it in the show notes for sure. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that the life of the siding is also dependent on your skills as a carpenter, you know, giving the wood a breathing space behind it, preventing the backside of the wood from getting wet or getting rotten in, in other ways. Yeah. On the one I did, I, it's amazing the combination of how little and how much information is out there in the world. The, the internet is this amazing tool. And also, I would say, like YouTube, I could spend days just watching people's videos on YouTube. But there are certain like dark spots. One is, I think there's not really good framing videos out there, like a step-by-step. -step, no one's really doing that. Or, I mean... Everything changes. There could have already been one. I just haven't searched recently. And uh, another one is board and batten. 
because there's lots of different theories on board, Ben. So unless you're actually working with somebody who's been doing it for years and knows the exact rules of it. So yeah, I went on a deep dive in board and batten, trying to figure out the perfect. And that's what I eventually did with my studio is the board and bat. Cool. I I think I heard your phone. It's actually my email popped on. Oh. Uh, I'm turning it off. <laughs> okay, no worries. If you're Sorry on a Mac, that? you can you can do the do not disturb. Oh. It's the like three little lines in the upper right corner of your screen and then that opens up like your today widgets. And if you scroll up, like try to go above that, you'll see this little do not disturb toggle. Already on. Thank you. Boom. There you go. Uh, see, you learn something new every day. Exactly. Maybe I'll leave that in so that people yeah. can learn how to. Yeah, I think to... it's a good lesson for anybody <laughs> with a Mac. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor for today's show, tinyhouseforum.com. Founder Chuck Campfield became interested in tiny house living after attending a festival in 2018, but was disappointed when he couldn't find a central online resource for exchanging information and encouragement with other tiny house hopefuls, dwellers, and builders. So he assembled a team of talented web developers and Tiny House Forum was born. Tiny House Forum is dedicated to inspiring and nurturing all who are interested in furthering their knowledge of the tiny house revolution. And right now, you can be entered to win $500 cash by joining Tiny House Forum and making your first few posts. You can learn more about the contest and sign up at tinyhouseforum.com. Thank you so much to Tiny House Forum for sponsoring our show. So, um, are there any... I mean, I, I've seen so much interest in Shishugiban. I, I actually have a friend who's cited his entire not-tiny house in it. Um, <laughs> Are there any common mistakes or things that you, you know, tell people, you know, don't do this or watch out for that? Uh, the big one, and I've seen videos on YouTube and I just like, it's one of those things where you see a wood turning video where somebody's got gloves on or something hanging from them. You're just in so much fear for them. Don't ever do Shoshujiban on an existing structure. Always do it with the siding, not up. Like, so anything you do, it has to be separate. Like if, yeah. Right. So you, you don't burn down your house is basically yeah, the advice. Basically, like you don't like the way it looks once you put up, don't retouch it with a tort. Uh, <laughs> somebody funny. sent me a video of a Russian guy redoing, doing Shoshujiban on his oak floor inside the house. And he was doing it with a hand torch, a small one. So I could see that you could get away with it, but it's just nerve wracking. Right. I mean, fires can definitely spread fast. Yeah. My, my favorite. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing what people will do. Yes. And that's, that's a good, um, that's <laughs> something you can find on YouTube too. Yes. All the, all the fails. <laughs> Would you do, or when you did yours, did you do both sides? Did you, did you get the backside too? I only did one side. Traditionally, you only do one side. Uh, I think if you do both sides, uh, you could do it. But at that point, you're actually messing with the structural integrity of the wood. Ah, and right. I guess that is a good point that you are, you know, the, the, the bit of the wood that you're burning is, is now weakened. It's no longer strong. Yeah, strong. It, yeah. It's kind of the same principle with building. Let's say you want to build a house. 
you can't use beams unless it's a log cabin that are cedar because it doesn't have the structural integrity of even let's just say dug fir. But you can use it for siding, you can use it for other things, and it's great for that, but you don't want to do it for your joists. And that kind of carries over in the same sense. Right. So this is for non-structural parts of your yeah. Exactly. Nothing structural unless you know, it's an overbuilt structural column and it's out of oak and then you've blackened it and oiled it beforehand and then put it. Sure. I think it's mostly just common sense. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like, I like how you said that it's an art and not a science. And so it sounds like the best thing to do would be to get some of your siding material that you're planning to use it and then just experiment figure out what look you like, do a lot of samples, and then, you know, keep track of how you did it so that way you can replicate it. Yeah, and also uh, try different pieces of wood, see how they look to you. Oak is very different and stays much blacker. Uh, And a lot of woodworkers now are doing a technique where they burn the wood, they brush off the top layer, and what it does is it leaves the grain lines much darker, and then they go back in with a, a dye and they dye the wood. So you'll have these black streaked blue boards. And it's not my style, but it looks gorgeous. I just wouldn't want it on my house. Right. But for like a a piece of art or like a, you know, a single object, that could be a really cool look. Yeah. Or an accent in in something where like you've painted it blue and now the wood around it is somewhat blue. Yeah, that, it is interesting how wood can have that almost blue look to it. Yeah, well, so this is actually where they're taking, uh, it's actually like a trans tint or any other dye like that. And you, you'll actually dye the wood and it'll soak into the wood grain and get it bright. One of Deke's classes, uh, we, I had some extra left over and we did the door to his uh, structure at the fuller with red or no, no, it was blue, and it looked like blue jeans. It was a cedar nice. door that ended up looking like a pair of blue jeans. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. So another kind of cool thing that I saw you demonstrate at a, another tiny house summer camp um, was working with bamboo. and Ah, my favorite plant. Yeah, so why don't, you know, we've... We've never talked about Shishugiban on the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast. We've never talked about bamboo. So what is, you know, when people think of bamboo, I think they they think of probably a invasive, you know, it's an invasive plant. Oh, gosh. Um, They probably also think of maybe like the tropics, like, you know, tropical areas. But it seems like it's it's usable and and cultivatable even in the Northeast. Oh, it's. It could, well, it, so in the Northeast, because of the cold, we, they're, the ones that we can grow just grow a little stunted. So I think the highest we can achieve here is about 20, 25 feet. Whereas if you get down to DC and you start getting just a little bit more, actually, even Connecticut, they grow a little taller. It just keeps growing taller as you go south. I used to have this all in my head when I give talks about it and I brush up, but Bamboo is really one of the most incredible things on the plant. It's the fastest growing plant in the world. You can actually watch it grow 12 inches in a day. 
That's insane. You can stick a rule. It's insane. It, it grows its entire length in one year. So um, it's grass, same family as the grass that you mow with your uh, lawnmower or weed whacker or whatever. And it has the tensile strength of steel. And actually during the war, World War II, when we were running out of uh, steel, we, uh, and still in Guam, I think in some spots, we used bamboo as rebar in our structures. Wow. And I think Singapore still uses bamboo in their road structures. There's a, I don't know if you can find it. I haven't seen it for a while. There's a great video of an earthquake. I think it's in Hong Kong. And the guys on the ladder, they can go up something like 14 stories on these bamboo scaffoldings building. And the building starts to crumble around them as the whole structure sways. And they're on the ladder, but their ladder is fine. It's just moving with the, uh, with the kind of the shakes. Wow. And that's just a pole lashed to a pole lashed to a pole. They have a school in Hong Kong that you can go to. It's like a, a scaffolding academy. I, at one point, I wanted to go, but I've never been able to get over my fear of heights enough to uh, do that. So, yeah, it's also it's a huge carbon scrubber. It pulls more out than almost any plant. Um, and it grows so well. It takes about seven years to get a grow fully, you know, producible and functional on living on its own. But once they're going, and I think the issue of invasive species is that people plant bamboo without really understanding what it takes to plant bamboo. It's kind of like people getting a pet and then giving it up because they can't deal with it. They just haven't realized what you need to do. So you have to understand that you have to block it or trench it and then also take care of it. A lot of people just stick it in the ground thinking it's going to be fine. Then they get upset that it spreads. So it's just a kind of a little bit of consciousness in what you're doing. So do you have it growing where you live? I do. I actually, uh, well, so I think there's only three local bamboo in the United States. Uh, I went to out where I used to live. There's a place called Bamboo Sorcery. It's the oldest bamboo nursery in the U.S. And uh, I got uh, four different bamboos from them. And I transported them over in the summer, which was too late to plant, kept them in the basement under lights, put them in, and they didn't do anything, but they just started to react. So they're now starting to feel like uh, they might grow. Which means I have I've already seen one of them sent a shoot from this little plant. The rhizome came up like four feet away, but I don't want to dig it up yet. I want to let it establish itself, and then I can dig it up and move it, and then trench it. So I'm I'm waiting because I want my yard to have like little pockets of bamboo all of. I mean, not little, but tall. Right. It's like it's amazing how dense it grows. Like it's it's like a natural fence. Oh yeah, it's great and it sounds wonderful too. Yeah. If if you're a fan of aspen groves and the sound of aspen groves, bamboo has a similar quality. So what do you what do you do with it? Uh I make a I make a lot of fountains uh for gardens. Uh they're really easy to make. It takes you 2 seconds. They look gorgeous. 
I've used it to run uh, streams from one pond to another, like a almost like a waterway system. I've used it to build structures. Uh, when I did the intern or the, uh, I was in Waitsfield, Vermont at the elementary school, and I did an artist in residency. We built a bamboo bridge, me and the kids, that stretched over the creek that they could climb on. Cool. Um, but. I mean, so many things are made with bamboo these days. It's just that we don't get the large size, so it's not easy to use structural bamboo in the U.S. So it's more used as accents or it's cut down into small pieces and re-glued like the bamboo flooring. Right. And bamboo is incredibly hard. It has silica in it. And so if you use a regular saw on it, it's just going to ruin the blade. Wow. I recommend... uh getting it from a, a supply house that sells Japanese saws. So like my favorite is in Berkeley, uh, Hita Tools, but you can get them all over, but you want a, a bamboo-specific saw whenever you're cutting bamboo. So is it a special metal or a special like profile of the blade? It's actually how they treat it. They uh, use electro, uh, electro-induction, uh, high-intensity electricity, to kind of carbonize a blade and make it a lot stronger in that sense. It's, yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and I also build fences a lot. And uh, you've been to Deke's summer camp. You know how it's, uh, he has a big tarp when it rains. That was just extra bamboo left over from another project. So the uses are kind of infinite in the sense of where you want to go with it. There's one book I recommend for anybody who's going into uh, looking at bamboo called Bamboo Bamboo Fences. It's out of print, but you can get it usually for like $20 on Craigslist. I mean, not Craigslist, eBay or Amazon or something like that. And uh, I don't know why it's out of print, but it is just a wonderful how-to of bamboo. And even though it's all about fences, all the applications in that can be applied to building in other op- ways. Nice. Yeah, I think, and, and I'm curious, like, how long does it last, like, when you use it as a fence? Like, is it is it naturally rot resistant or do you? It's somewhat. It will get mold on the outside. And uh, so in in a lot of countries, what they do is, I mean, this is my neighbors love me and hate me because I'm here in Cambridge in a very small dead end street and my projects end up in the driveway. So my Shushujiban projects. And then when I was first experimenting with bamboo, that was one. And uh, there are two ways to preserve it. One, you can dry it like a a tree and rotate it. Actually, there's three because in Asia, they usually soak it in a borax mix. And then in the U.S. or like, if you want to speed up the process, you burn the wood uh, on the outside and you rub it down with a, a washcloth or a wet towel as you go. Because what happens is, unlike a tree, so it's kind of the reverse. A tree, the bark outside is dead and the inside is alive. Bamboo is a grass, so the outside's alive and the inside's dead. So what'll happen is each one of those little nodes is its own little air pocket. And if you heat it up, uh, the heat has nowhere to go. And eventually it blows up and it just, boom. 
uh, it's hilarious to watch, especially the first time you do it and don't realize what you're doing. So you have to poke a hole down each of those interiors and break them out. That way, when you heat it up, you can let the air up. But just like Shoshujiban with a torch, you can actually blacken your uh, bamboo. Nice. But the reason you heat it is uh, it's filled with sugars, that outside layer, and that attracts bugs, the green. And so when you heat it, you're actually like a creme brulee. You're caramelizing the sugar. And it, it's tacky like that. So that's why you wash it as you go, because otherwise you'll just have this tacky caked on sugar on the outside of the wood. Wow. That's really interesting. When when I saw you working with it, you also demoed, I don't know what it's called, but it was a tool that you used to basically split the bamboo. It, it's a really unusual name. It's called a bamboo splitter. Ah, wow. <laughs> so creative. Uh, yes, exactly. It's a cast iron kind of wheel with two handles on it. And you... Basically, you put one side down on something solid, and then the other side goes to the top, and you tap it in, and then you hit it with a wooden mallet. You don't want to hit it with metal. You'll crack the cast iron. And you move it in just a little bit, and then the rest can just be forced. Just like with wood and a fro to make shingles, putting a blade in the grain, it'll eventually find its way, and it'll just split easily. And that way, the more... Uh, cutters they have, the more expensive they are. So like a three cutter is pretty cheap. A five cutter is reasonable. When you get up into seven, then they end up in the 200 range. Wow. So what do you use the strips for? So you can weave a fence with those. You can weave a pathway. Uh, I think up at summer camp, we wove a fence when we weren't doing something else. We broke up some of the bamboo I had and we wove a fence on an angle. Nice. And where do you where do you currently get bamboo? Like since since your personal patch is not yet. I used to have this great deal with the botanical labs at Harvard because I was a, a preschool teacher there. And right across the way, uh, they had a grove that they just let go wild. And so I would go over there with the kids and we would cut down a whole bunch and we'd drag it over to the sand pit and we'd make uh, jungle gyms out of it. And so I was using that for years, but they eventually tore it down. Now I have to go either to D.C. or Connecticut. It just depends. I kind of keep an eye on Craigslist and I talk to people about it. And sometimes like for the Waitsfield thing, I had to go to Long Island, cut down the grove. And then you should have seen me pulling up on the ferry with 25 foot long poles sticking in front of my truck and behind it. As they got on the ferry, they were not happy, but they let me on. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think I, I have a memory of you maybe maybe a few years ago, like towing a trailer laden with a lot of cedar with like a tiny Honda Civic. Yeah, uh, I think Jen and uh, Dan took a photo of that. I yeah. asked him, send it. I used to, ha we used to have a Honda Civic and uh, the amount of stuff I got on there with a roof rack was amazing. So I had a four by eight trailer stacked with wood and then on the roof rack, it was stacked with wood and, you know, it worked. Eventually, you know, it started to give up the ghost and become more expensive to fix uh, than it was to, you know, walk away from it. But yeah, I think it's a lot of people think that they need to have the big vehicles to do certain things, but just thinking it out, it, 
the options are there are a lot of them even with a little car like that yeah a roof rack can can work wonders for you and then if you do have a vehicle that can tow anything a little trailer then that really opens up a lot of potential yeah so a little tiny four-cylinder car if you take a trailer if you get a hitch on it that's the main thing that most four cylinders don't have if you get a hitch and you don't push the motor you can pull a four by eight trailer with a lot of wood as long as you're smart about it right you can't you can't work it too hard yeah exactly you don't have rev it up the hills you yeah. <laughs> take it nice and easy yeah so one of the other topics that you mentioned when when we set up this conversation was that you're into finding old techniques for doing things and kind of finding places where maybe the old way that that people built or or did certain woodworking things were actually made more sense or were even easier than how we do it now. Yeah, I mean the Shoshujiban is a great example. Yeah, that is a great example. Um are there any are there any others that you kind of like to tell people about in that same category? Yeah, I mean, so I'm a woodworker and I work with other woodworkers. Like uh, even today, we are clearing out an old barn from a woodworker who had passed away and stored wood for years. And I got to look at all of the decking that he had taken off these houses over the last 30 years and that he had cleaned up. And it was all this exotic wood like Purple Heart and mahogany and certain types that you can't get anymore. And he had stored it to use uh, later. And the guy I was working with, his name's Woody. He, it's a great name for a woodworker. Oh, yeah, I know. Actually, uh, <laughs> and he works with me. And his big thing is restoring old machines and okay. then donating them to uh, schools and colleges uh, or like youth groups so that they actually have tools that they can use. And he repairs them, makes them safe. He was the most excited by the 80-year-old bandsaw in the thing, in the barn, whereas the newer Ryobi and uh, I think DeWalt, he was not happy with and didn't want anything to do with. Wow. So, and that has to do with construction. And it's, I'm not one of these, you know, crusty old men on the side of the road who's like, old things are always better. Uh, I'll go out and buy the best tool for the job. So, you know, I will buy a Festool. Because the Festool will cut down all the time and energy I spend uh, normally on the project. But the old techniques like uh, that are just amazing. So uh, old joinery techniques, old ways of preserving wood. Um, Like I was just saying, the guy I talked to, he has an old recipe from a popular mechanic. He was going to send me on how to use boiled linseed oil for a preservative. And there are ones around. but These are things that have been perfected for a hundred years and he happened to keep this old recipe. Um, So, yeah, I mean, like I have a book I found at a, I think it was in Northampton, like in a little bookstore and it was pine furniture, early pine furniture of the Americas. I think it was made in the 1920s, but this guy had obviously gone into houses that hadn't been updated since like the 1700s. And these were people were still living in this when he took these photographs. And in the plates, it says, I would like to thank so-and-so family for allowing me to be in their house. And then he does a breakdown of it. So this 
you know, the um, for tiny house building, like the table I'm at right now is this old circular table. It was a, but you take two pegs out and it flips up and it becomes a chair. And underneath the chair, it also stores books. So there's all these techniques that people have been using for so long that people are rediscovering or partially rediscovering. And especially in the tiny house movement, I cannot tell you how many times I see stuff that people are feel like they're they're discovering and really they've been around forever, including I would say even the tiny house movement. There's been so many versions and layers of it over the years, even in the United States. Cool. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um it's it seems that our houses started getting a whole lot bigger about seventy five years ago or so. Yeah, the yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You see the GI buildings made from the uh after the war, and they're they're closer to the tiny houses that you know, in the sense of uh their smaller footprint. Than and they are to the giant houses of, of today. Of today, yeah. yeah. And you see the kind of I don't know, consumerism and greed, it just builds and builds and that goes into the housing. But like uh, as I grew up, I grew up in a kind of a time in between. My parents were hippies. So I always say that the real hippies were the kids of hippies because they made a choice. We didn't have a choice. We were brought up <laughs> that way. And so I would spend every summer living out of the back of a camper or camping in the Sierras. And uh, even when I remember when I was like eight, I had a 10 by 10 cabin on the outside of the house. I had my own cabin. Uh, and then with my friends, we would run wild up in the woods and just build our own tree forts. We have uh, these cypress trees in. Northern California and Bolinas, they they look like this windswept kind of tree mm -hmm. and they lean out. And all we would do is go up and set plywood down and create our own forts and then slowly build up. So it was structurally very unsafe, but we had our own forts and lived at them all summer. That's awesome. It's a good, good training in tiny house building. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little bit of what not to do and what to do. Well, it seems like you made it out unscathed. Uh, yeah, a couple punctures here and there and a couple cuts, but, you know, that's growing up. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is, um, are there any books or resources that you recommend? You already mentioned the um, Bamboo Fence book. Um, oh, yeah, that's a great one. Any books on, you know, that you like to recommend about carpentry, or woodworking? I think for anybody interested in early American carpentry, uh, um, Eric Sloan is probably one of my favorites. There's a museum dedicated him down in, I think it's in Connecticut. He was, I think he was born in 1908. Uh, and then he, he's kind of one of the American masters for landscape painting, but he was really a builder and he was working on barns that these old guys who had built the barns were then taking down with him. And he would ask questions constantly to the annoyance of these old guys he worked with. And so he started writing books on the tools and the techniques. And he's a great illustrator. 
And so, yeah, Eric Sloan is one of the best for just like classic American. He even wrote a book on how people from colonial times predicted the weather or, you know, etiquette of colonial times, but a lot of it's woodworking stuff. And I definitely recommend uh, his. And then my favorite book for anybody who's into the small houses and would like a view from another area is Absney Brown. It's A-Z-B-Y Brown. He's a uh, somebody who went and studied in Japan, and he wrote a wonderful book called, uh, what is it called? <laughs> oh, Just Enough, it, which is the perfect title for it. And he basically studies Edo Japan and how overpopulated it was and how they were facing all the same problems that we have now and what they did to combat that and how they worked on communal living, how they built the houses, how they restructured their entire society. And some of the areas in Tokyo were more compact in that time than they are now. Wow. And they were... It, yeah, so it's it's a really good resource for just kind of rethinking the tiny house and what you need. Neat. Yeah, there's that there's that Japanese principle of wabi sabi, you know, kind of the beauty and the imperfection too. Yeah, one of my uh favorite authors, uh Thomas Merton, he's a a monk. He, he that was his favorite thing to do for photography. When he had time to himself, he would do wabi sabi photographs. He would look for the imperfect in the world around him. I like that. Well, Paulo Coleman, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks. It was fun chatting. Thank you so much to Paulo Coleman for being a guest on today's show. You can find the show notes from today's episode at thetinyhouse.net slash 078. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 078. A special thank you to our sponsor this week, tinyhouseforum.com. Don't forget to head over there, create your first post to be entered to win $500 cash. Thank you so much, Tiny House Forum. We really appreciate you sponsoring the show. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.